Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com, dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be, helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. You may have noticed I've taken a break from posting episodes for a few months, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is I've been focusing on my new podcast, The Heart of Soul, which you can find on YouTube or any podcast app. And I do that with a gentleman named Stace Barron. I hope you'll check it out. I've also been just very busy with serving clients, and I do want to keep this podcast going, so I am back. But in order to save some time, rather than carving up my hour-long talks into smaller pieces, which adds a lot of editing time, I'll be from now on, or at least for the time being, releasing longer episodes. And I'm also now releasing video of these episodes on YouTube. This is in video right now. Hello. Hello. Which you can find, uh, you can find the video at youtube.com slash at clear and open and is spelled out youtube.com slash and so let me try that again, youtube.com slash at clear and open. I hope you like the new direction. Uh, today's episode is like from the last series for my course, The Art of Asking Questions. We talk a lot about the importance of deep listening and using questions to get to the heart of the matter in this conversation with some interesting real-time examples. I'm a business coach, spiritual educator, and therapist, and I specialize in helping leaders get out of their own way. Maybe I can help you too for more information about what I do or to become part of the conversations you hear on this podcast, please visit clearandopen.com. Thanks for listening. Um, So we're going to talk about listening. And if you haven't noticed yet, we're going to sort of be not quite backing our way into asking questions. Um, That's one way of talking about it, I suppose. The thing is that Asking questions is sort of, you could say, metaphysically derivative or metaphysically downstream. If you're curious, this is the premise of the course so far, if you're curious, and we did some exploring about what kinds of conditioning might be in the way of your curiosity, if you're curious, premise number one, you'll listen, premise number two. If you listen you'll ask the right questions, premise number three. So it's in that order. So it's not about knowing how to ask the right questions. It's about one, being really curious, and two, listening really carefully. And the premise I'm going to be, or the sort of treatise I'm going to be making, is that if you're really listening carefully, you don't have to think of what questions to ask. The questions will just be pulled out of you as a function of your curiosity and your listening. So that's the premise for probably this session and the next, it probably will take two or three. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But the first sub premise of this premise is that everybody hides. That's the premise in two words. Everybody hides. It's a cousin to uh, the great Dr. Gregory, the great Dr. Gregory house. If you know that TV show, one of my favorite ones, he says, everybody lies. And that's a cynical version of everybody hides. Everybody hides is innocent because everybody is not consciously hiding nor lying, but we all do it. So what are we hiding from? 
Well, in short, ourselves. But we can answer it lots of different ways. The truth, reality, what we're afraid of, uh, the unknown, a loss of feeling of control. There's a kind of um, resistant-based relationship that all of us on some level have with reality. And we contract and push away from that reality in a way we could sum up as hiding. And so <clears throat> if you want to know what questions to ask, you listen for where people are hiding. In short, that's what you do. Now, this mostly applies, it sort of depends on how you apply it, but uh, let's, let's make a fine distinction here. If you are in an authority position, a coach, a mentor, a manager, a parent, if you're in an authority position, then you have a explicit or implicit jurisdiction to get to the truth with that person, to discuss, met out, uh, find out where they're hiding and to get to the bottom of that. You have that jurisdiction. With peers, spouses, friends, co-workers, you do not have that. So don't tell me that I didn't tell you this. If you start digging to find what's true with people that you don't have just jurisdiction to dig with and they get pissed off, don't tell me I didn't tell you that would happen because that's what will happen. And <clears throat> the better you get at seeing where people are hiding, the more seductive it becomes to just do that all the time. And it, sometimes that's just inevitable. You have to learn the hard way. But do not do that. And the, the governing dynamic for peer relationships, especially <clears throat> personal relationships, the governing dynamic is connection, relating. Uh, the, the governing dynamic is not getting to some deeper truth. That's not the agreement. There may be in moments, but <clears throat> in a peer relationship, it would be your job to ask about that. You see, hmm, seems like there's something going on here below what you're talking about. Can I ask you some hard questions that might get to the heart of that? You, you would have to ask a question like that to a peer. Whereas if it's someone you're managing, you don't have to ask that question. Uh, if you do, then your relationship with that employee or mentee or whatever is messed up to begin with, because that should be in the frame of the relationship, right? Can I ask um, a question? Please. Um, just after you gave the three premises, uh, you said something about um, uh, recognizing when someone's hiding something, you'll know the questions to ask. Did you say that? Yep. Can you go that back to that? sounds like something I would say. <laughs> Can I, what's the question? Say more about well, that. I, I just wanted to make sure that I, I knew what we were talking about now, how it started. Yeah. Which was, I, That's what we're going to go that? into. When someone is oh, hiding, that should draw you in. Now, we're going to talk at, at length about how to tell if someone is hiding. Uh, yes. I, so I appreciate your curiosity because that's exactly what the subject of today and probably next session is as well. It depends on how far we get. I've got lots of sort of clues that people are hiding. Do you guys follow the thing about hiding yet? Or do I need to say more about how people are hiding? I mean, I think it makes some intuitive sense. 
you know, let me say a little bit more about it as more comes to me. Um, especially in the society of the United States, which is very image-based, we're conditioned that what we need to present to people is not our authentic selves, but the best possible self-image. What we want people to see, not what is actually so. And this ranges from conscious intentional and intentional to not conscious at all. So the that's one of the main things that you're having to get through when someone is speaking to large degree you're hearing their self-image which is like a kind of cellophane gel that goes over who they actually are so who they actually are comes out comes through to some degree but it's colored just like a light gel it's colored by the self-image and the self-image will reveal certain things and not other things. But interestingly, here's part two of this uh, first premise about people hiding. They also desperately want to be seen. And these are, of course, opposite. So they desperately want to hide from the truth, from you, from showing who they really are to people. But at the same time, they desperately want to be seen. And those two dynamics cause little clues from them to leak through because what ends up being the effect of the situation is there's hiding 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 breadcrumb hiding 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 breadcrumb hiding 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 breadcrumb people are giving you these little breadcrumb trails these little clues that if you're curious enough something in them is actually secretly hoping that you'll follow that and get to know who they really are. Metaphysically speaking, what's going on is that is the soul, the truest aspect of the human being. The truest aspect of them, the soul, wants to be seen, wants to take up space, wants to fully inhabit. And then the defense system of the human being says, no, you can't do that. That's not safe oversimplification but that's basically what's going on so if you are in a helper position manager therapist coach parent you're in that authority position you have the opportunity to listen to the person's very soul and try to elicit it forward to make it safe so to speak so that it can be but you got to be able to hear the clues and resolve, if you will, that they want to be seen, but don't want to be seen, that they want to be heard, but don't want to be heard because both are true and it can depend on the moment. Okay. Follow me so far. Uh, are the clues and the breadcrumbs to, to the fact that they uh, want to be seen or a, a specific thing that they want to be seen about? Can be both. Yeah, I mean, that's just content and context, right? In general, they want to be seen, and in that's context. In content, they maybe want to be seen in a specific way, but not want to sort of risk it. And we all do this intuitively, right? We all, we, we have this expression, listening between the lines and social cues. And so, you know, most people, uh, depending on whether they're on the uh, autism scale or not, I am a little bit, so I've had to learn this the hard way by studying it because I am I'm uh, near the Aspergian realm 
Um, most people just naturally listen between the lines and they listen to what people are not saying, how they said it. We just do this naturally. So this is not rocket science. I'm just taking uh, what you already know and we're going to just drill down uh, and sort of exponentialize it and uh, show you what you can do with the skill that you already have if you really pay attention and develop it. Because what you will find, if you don't know this already, if you haven't experienced this already, is that people tell you an enormous amount of information about themselves all the time. So much so that it is overwhelming at first until you learn to manage it. People tell you so much in a single phrase, a single word choice, not even a whole sentence. They can tell you pages and pages and pages of information about themselves if you know how to listen. So let's talk about how to listen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> something else, anybody? I just had, I guess, kind of, a, this might be something that you're going to talk about already or dig into, but around the self-image projection is how often or the relationship between the image that somebody's projecting and that actually being the thing they hide. So for example, like somebody projecting that they're like, I don't know, wealthy through whatever they're saying they have, when in reality, they have like a lot of financial trouble or something, because they're trying to like, sort of like counterbalance, like something they might be afraid of people seeing or feel shame about or whatever. And so they project they're the opposite of that, when in reality, that's what they're hiding by projecting that self image. That makes sense? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, we can start there. So what here's what I'd say, you can't know, it's not necessarily the opposite. But in the realm of self-image, anytime you feel or observe someone is pushing their self-image on you, in other words, they really want you to believe a certain thing about them, something is up. You don't know what, but something is up. It could mean what's actually true or at least partly true is the opposite, or it might mean they're afraid it's the opposite, or it might mean um, they don't feel like they earned what they have, so they feel like they've got to sell it to you because they've got to sell it to themselves. So it can mean any number of things. And I'm glad you brought that up, Christine. Thank you. Because one of the things I think that's hard for people to, uh, hard about people learning this kind of stuff is they're looking for like an A to B correlation sometimes. And you're, this kind of thing requires what I, I like to call preliminary assumptions. You have to be willing to make preliminary assumptions or guesses. You, you have to follow hunches. So these breadcrumbs are not going to be definitive kinds of, um, you know, they're going to be clues, not uh, answers or, or conclusions. So you have to be willing to follow clues and be curious without having any hard evidence, you know, clues, not evidence. And then, you know, so you'll, oh, they just, hmm, that's the third time they've told me about their net worth this afternoon. That's interesting, you know, and then you, you, you sort of, I don't know what that means, but it's something. And then you hold it off to the side and then you can continue to collect data and see if what those other clues do. And then does it build some kind of case? So you have to be willing to collect data without knowing necessarily what it means. And that's difficult for some people because that's not deductive reasoning, I don't think. I think it's inductive or I don't know. I never really learned what those things were, but it's a different kind of reasoning. You have to be willing to take preliminary, you, you have to be willing to sort of slowly construct a model 
and trust your model for what's going on in the person, but at the same time, be willing to throw it out at any time. And I think that's what's difficult for people because you just, you, that's what I call not knowing your way through something. You don't throw your hands up and go, well, I have no idea what's going on with this person. And you don't try to fit them into a very neat box either. It's somewhere in between where you're sort of slowly trying to get your head and heart around what's happening. That's a good question, Christine. Thank you. So let's talk about, um, because this is, I, I'm actually, I have notes this time because this has all been coming to me over the last couple of weeks. So um, let's, the, let's talk about stock language. And some of you guys have heard me talk about stock language before. Stock language is um, business cliche, definitely any and all sports metaphors. We're going to knock, we're going to knock this out of the park. We need people to step up to the plate. All sports metaphors are stock language. Stock language, also called symbolic language. Um, which is a good language for it. I like um, uh, stock language because it's like stock photography. Stock stock photography, it's like, you know, if somebody shows you a picture of the two people in suits shaking hands, like you don't look, you just, you've seen it before. Your, your brain immediately is like, yep, seen a thousand of those, not paying attention because it's stock photography. It doesn't, it's not unique. It's not interesting. It's not, it's not expressive. It's just stock. Um, Symbolic language is another way of talking about it, and it's accurate in a different way because what's being presented to you is a symbol. A symbol, by definition, is not the thing. So when you're talking with people, even though on one level you could say all words are symbols, but all words are symbols, and some of them are more symbolic than others. So uh, we need people to uh, you know, put their best foot forward or step up to the plate these are symbols they're metaphors nobody's stepping up to any plate unless you're actually about to play a big game of baseball in which case still though only one person at a time is going to step up to the plate aren't they <laughs> isn't that funny i never thought about that before we need everyone to step up to the plate even in a baseball game that doesn't happen not all at once right <laughs> i never thought about that but this is the kind of thing i, I want you to learn how to listen extremely literally extremely literally that's how you cut through symbolic language. You listen for, you listen literally. What are they actually saying? So, for example, when someone says um, something, you're always blah, 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 blah. I guarantee you that's not true. Nobody is always anything or never anything. So that's a different kind of stock language. It's, it's hyperbole, you could say, or exaggeration. But it's language that doesn't actually describe what's going on. And uh, this is tricky because to really hear stock language, you have to stop using it yourself. And desire to express yourself as clearly as possible without symbology, without stock stuff, without... Uh, some of you have uh, have been on the receiving end of comments for your vision because I, in business coaching, I have people write visions very often. And I will go through and just highlight every stock language aspect there is. And sometimes it's three quarters of a document. And uh, one of the um, difficult things, difficult positions I put people in is just basically redlining so much of their communication to get to the point where like, well, I don't know what to say. Everything I say, you're saying is stock language. Uh-huh, that's right. And that's what you have to deal with. Uh, and uh, it may sound cruel and unusual, but it does work. Because if you just keep pointing to that stock language, that stock language, that stock language, eventually people start to see it 
and then start using different word choices. So it's also difficult because, you know, related to that, stock language is pretty much how every politician you've ever heard speaks, like all of them, uh, and, um, you know, many other leaders as well. And to me, I hold it as when a leader is speaking in stock language, also called business ease or, you know, the subset uh, legal ease, these kinds of um, stilted, um, vague, uh, metaphoric language that goes around actually talking about the truth. Uh, it's no wonder that not, not much really substantially improves in our society because nobody's actually talking about what's going on. Uh, and, and they'll make all sorts of excuses for why that is. It's like, oh, well, we need to, you know, um, what's that expression, build bridges rather than walls, which is, of course, stock language because the two of you are not going to be building anything, are you? You're having a conversation. Right? So people will say, well, I need to, you know, we need to speak, you know, like there's one appropriate place for stock language, and that is diplomacy. If you're in a delicate situation where tensions are high and you need to purposely be vague and sort of round the corners off of your speech, then stock language, vague language, whatever you want to call it, symbolic language can be very useful in doing that because, of course, everything is based in truth somewhere. So that's actually where stock language comes from. It comes from the true usefulness of rounding possible edges off our language and making it easy for people to uh, understand, which is useful in many situations to de-escalate, you know, something like that, to, to de-escalate or, uh, you know, find some solution where uh, emotions are running high. That's all understandable. But then we get hooked by the idea of, oh, I can control this person's reaction to my words. So I'll speak that way all the time. That's what we unconsciously do. And behold, stock language. And so politicians who are more interested in winning the next election rather than actually getting something done speak in stock language all the time because... You know, think from a politician's perspective, they're like, hmm, state my position controversially in a way that's going to alienate a significant part of the voter base or say it a way that kind of feels good that would cause everybody to be like, yeah, well, I guess I'm for that. You know, I mean, look at the names of the bills and the laws. You know, they're always written in ways that are just like, I can't think of any of you have an example, jump in. But, uh, you know, they're How about the Bank Secrecy Act. What, what's that one about? Yeah, that one's all about the, allowing the government to uh, to get your secrets from the banks. Is it actually that? Uh, part, parts of it are. But is that what it's called? Yeah, well, it's referred it's referred to as that as that. But it's it, it, the the idea is to to make make um, uh, account holders think that their their um, secrets or their private information is safe. Ah. Where where the where the, the, the legislation actually gives the government um, permission to get that information from the bank. There force you the go. Banks right. Yes, that's sort of a subset of stock language. That's more like spin, um, which is uh, in the similar vein. And um, because this stock language is just a form of spin, it also just makes me think of the recent thing that Florida piece of legislation, the don't what's been getting called the don't say gay law. And it's like if the raw the law is very poorly written. I've talked to some journalists about it, and um, it, there's nowhere in there that says you can't say gay. But by calling the thing "don't say gay," it's that's what's called in debate a straw man. It 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 sort of sums it up in a position that's easily de easily defeated. 
Uh, a straw man is a kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a form of spin in stock language in some ways. So anyway, let's, I've talked about stock language a lot before, and it's a relatively simple one. But what I would say is just in summation here is listen very carefully to what people say. And here's the ultimate sort of filter. Is it possible to interpret what they're saying in more than one way? That's it. Is it possible to interpret what they're saying in more than one way? If it is, you have no idea what they're talking about. That's it. You have no idea what they're talking about. I remember once I was doing a sales training for Emeth way back in the day, and we were listening to, uh, I had a recorded uh, uh, sales conversation for the sales training of uh, coaches. And so we're playing it back, and the, uh, the prospect said, you know, I feel like I'm just spinning plates and I've been behind the eight ball for like, you know, a year. And the, the coach said, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I hit pause in the recording and I said, you have no idea what she's talking about. So what actually happened in that moment? He wanted to believe he knew what she was talking about. He wanted to give her the feeling that she was being listened to. But what she said was... A couple of metaphors. Is she spinning plates? No, she was not spinning plates. Was she behind an actual eight ball? No. So what are those things? It's a communication. It's saying, I've been overwhelmed. I've been busy. Okay, so that's what you know. And how many different possible interpretations are there of that? Like an infinite number. So you don't actually know. Overwhelmed with what? How many hours are you working a week? Are you doing things that you shouldn't be doing? Are you doing them inefficiently? You see, all of these questions, if you realize when someone says something like, I've been behind the eight ball, I feel like I'm spinning plates. If you realize, okay, they're trying to tell me something, but I actually have no idea what's going on in their life. And another way of doing this is trying to picture in your mind when people are telling you stuff, try to picture it, like try to see it. Try to reconstruct their words so that you have an accurate scene in your mind of what their life is like. And that's tricky because you may be able to do that just based on your interpretation. But again, if what they're saying has multiple interpretations, then you can't believe anything you make up about it because you don't actually know. So this is one of my uh, Aspergian superpowers because I'm very literal and I was also uh, a st a studied English in college. So I'm really rigorous with word choice. And I, when I'm listening to people, I'm trying to construct a model for what their reality is. And if they're making, for example, poor, poor word choice even, uh, like if they you know, miss, uh, they uh, mix up imply and infer or something. I'm correcting that in my head. Oh, they don't mean that. They mean this. Okay. Oh, no, they just said this word. I don't know what they mean by that. I've got to ask about that. It's a very active, the expression in coaching sometimes gets used. It's active listening. I think that's active listening has become cliche. It's uh, become stock language. I'm saying what active listening is, is it's like you're hungry and passionate about really knowing what the hell is going on over there. And if you're hungry and passionate and curious about that, then when they provide obstacles like metaphors, like cliche, like vaguenesses, it should bug you. It should annoy you because you want so badly, I'm exaggerating a little bit, 
but it should annoy you because you want so badly to understand what's going on. And it this takes energy. It's a deep, deep listening. And I think this goes without saying, but uh, while you're doing this listening, you're not thinking about anything else. You're not thinking about what you're going to eat tonight or what you did yesterday. You, you're, you can't let your mind wander. That's just uh, a wander. That's just basic. Because you're... Uh, and you can't listen like this, you know, 12 hours a day, you know, uh, with a lot of practice, you can maybe get to six. That's, I'd say, about the limit of that, this level of listening, because it gets really tiring. It's a laser, laser, laser focus where you're abjectly curious and you will not take vagueness, stock language, metaphor, or whatever for an answer. Now, that doesn't mean when they say such a thing, you go, you idiot, I'm trying to construct a model for what's going on in you, and you can't talk like that. No, no, you just, you get curious, you ask questions. So if someone is using stock language and you get curious and ask questions about that and they use more stock language, well, now they're probably hiding something. Okay, so everybody is innocent until proven guilty. But when you get drawn in by that vagueness a second, third time and you try to get clarification, well, now what they're telling you is they don't want to be clear. Now you got to start constructing a model for why that might be. Right? You see, that's the next curiosity. Okay, they weren't clear. And then I asked clarifying questions and they're still not getting clear. Something is going on. They're hiding because you gave them the opportunity to get clearer. Who knows? Maybe they don't know. Maybe they're afraid. It doesn't really matter. We're not at the point of diagnosis yet. It's just about asking questions. The point is to get pulled into that. So um, for you, as part of what you're implying a few sentences back that there are certain stock language examples that a person might use that it's safe for you, depending on what it is, to interpret what that means and other things that you really have to go back and get clarification on? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Here's what I'd say. Stock language is often just a headline. So someone starts with, I feel like I'm behind the eight ball. Okay, fine. You know, I have that's functions as a headline. What's a headline do? It gives you a vague sense of the story. But if that never turns into details about the story and it stays sort of vague headline stuff, then don't think you know what's going on. And if you really want to help them, you need to know what's going on. So like I said, you know, sometimes, you know, like in a peer situation, for example, uh, it may be that the person just wants to generally and vaguely vent about their day. And they can talk about their overwhelm in vague terms and in cliche terms. And you can listen and go, oh, yeah, it's tough. Like, see, you got a lot going on. And sometimes in those cases, asking lots of specific questions to try to build a picture of what's going on will just piss them off because they don't want to go into details. They've lived those details all day. They just want to vent about it. Okay, cool. So, um, yes, I was. I may have, may, I may have just been talking about my relationship with my girlfriend there. <laughs> That has happened a few times. And so then you've got to discern, okay, what does the situation call for? So here's some vague language about things. I'd love to be able to help. And and I go into asking, uh, well, you're just trying to fix it. Oh, right. Sorry. Sorry. I'd Sorry. I do that for a living. Uh, you know, tell me more about how it feels. Okay. So if the person just wants to be felt in where they're at, you may not need to get really specific about what's going on. But I still would say you're you can connect that way at the level of heart and feel where they're at. 
but you're not going to know where they're at. And sometimes that's okay. Uh, but if you really want to connect with someone, you need to feel where they're at and know where they're at, the, the heart and the mind. And again, sometimes people just don't want to necessarily talk about all the details of whatever, whatever it is that just that's, defeats the purpose of the venting, perhaps. Okay, fine. You know, reality always trumps everything. So you got to start there. But the point is, is uh, just assume, and here's another principle about listening, assume you can always listen better. Assume you can always listen better. I've been a professional listener for over 20 years, and I still come from the place of, it, there's an urgency to it. You, you, you listen as if like, you know, every syllable that the person says could be the answer to life, the universe, and everything. You know, it has to, there's an urgency and a sense of like, I've got to really pay close attention or else I might miss something. Never be uh, lazy or, you know, sit back. I'm like, well, I'm a great listener, so I can just sit here. It's like, no, be, always be a little bit worried you might be missing something. That's, you know, not in an excessive fear-based way, but like um, that brings your attention to it. It matters. So those are some of the basics about listening and, and stock language. Any questions about that so far? Okay. Uh, next item up for bid, uh, logical contradiction. Logical contradiction is a meatball, to use a metaphor, sports metaphor, you know, like a meatball over the plate. That's one of the meatballs that you can listen for when people say X and then not X. I really need to tell this person blah, 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 blah about me. I think I watched on the plane I was on recently, I watched the one of the latest Spider-Man movies and I, I, I tried to write it down, but uh, I don't think I caught it right. But um, Peter Parker says something like, uh, I didn't want to, he said, like, I wanted to tell you I was Spider-Man, but how do you tell a person that? Okay, that's a contradiction. Okay, so you say you wanted to tell your girlfriend that you were Spider-Man, but you didn't know how. Well, you just said, I'm Spider-Man kind of in that sentence. So it's not true that you don't know how. So there's an example um, of, uh, of a contradiction. Um, and so when someone says, I wanted to tell you X, but I didn't know how horseshit. That's my internal reaction for your pleasure to witness. You didn't know how I didn't know how you mean you didn't have the vocabulary because that's literally what that means. You see, I didn't know how, like, I don't know how to, uh, describe the, um, change in spins on a quantum mechanical level. I don't have the training. I don't have the vocabulary. I don't have that knowledge. Uh, that I don't know how to talk about that. That's true. I don't know how. But when someone says, I wanted to tell you how I felt or I wanted to tell you what I thought and I didn't know how, they don't mean I didn't know how. You see what I mean? But think about the millions of times that will be said today in the world. I didn't know how. I didn't know how. It's not true. Okay. So if you listen really literally and you go, okay, you wanted to say these things, those words are in your vocabulary but you're saying you don't know how, that's a logical contradiction, you see? It's false, it's not true. I'm looking for some stronger reactions on people's faces right now, <laughs> you guys following me? Sometimes they get very animated about logical contradictions, I guess I was looking for the same. Well, um, if, if you want someone to say that, uh, hoping someone will say that, yeah, I've done that many times, <laughs> or I, I contemplate doing it, well, yeah, that's me. Okay. 
No, I don't know. That wasn't what I was looking for. But here's, but thank you. Um, another one, another logical contradiction. It's this is less of. Uh, now I'll save that for uh, that. That actually fits a different category. Um, and and sometimes again, sometimes this is this is honest. Sometimes be like, well, part of me wants to do this, and part of me wants to do this, and I, I'm not sure. That's honest, innocent confusion. They may not know. That's fine. Um, but if the confusion is not foregrounded and it's not honest and they're not aware of it you you may you can notice confusion where for example um uh and this is particularly true of uh in enneagram sixes uh, enneagram sixes are out of touch with their thinking they can be talking and you talk for like uh 90 seconds and go back and forth between two c completely opposite points and not even realize they're doing it and what they're doing is it's not just Enneagram sixes that do this, but it's especially so. What they're doing is there's confusion on the inside of them, and they're basically thinking out loud. And they're they're using you as a sounding board. Now, are they actually using you as a sounding board? Do you have like channels and stuff? No, they're not actually using you as a sounding board. That's a metaphor. So what are they actually doing? Your mind should ask. What are they actually doing? is using you as a meta-processing organ for their own confused thoughts, which sometimes looks like a sounding board. I'm just using you as a sounding board. Okay, well, have you ever had somebody unload a bunch of contradictory thoughts on you and you really didn't enjoy it? They weren't using you as a sounding board. What they were doing is drawing upon your soul energy to do what they needed to be doing for themselves. And it feels vampiric because it is. So just because someone's, you know, talking doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy for you and them. Sometimes just like, hey, you know, especially if they're meta to it. Hey, I'm confused about some stuff. Can I say some things and you tell me what you think? Okay, cool. But if they, you know, make a passionate argument for X and then just seamlessly slide into a passionate argument for not X and then make a passionate argument for Y and you start to feel disoriented and confused, you don't know what you're doing there. It could be that um, there's something else going on, you know. And maybe what needs to be done right there is like, you know what? Well, I mean, the easiest thing to say in those moments is like, you know what? I'm confused. It seems, and then just be a mirror back to them. But sometimes there's a way in which that can feel, well, here's what happens. If you do that, and you know me, I've done that many times. I'm learning to keep my mouth shut uh, very often in those uh, situations because it's not always called for. And I go, I'm confused. You said X and then you said not X and then you went back to X and... And, and then what they, what should happen then is they should go, it should is always in quotes, but what would be reasonable would be for them to say, oh, wow, you're right. Thank you so much. I am confused. But if that doesn't happen and they get edgy and pissy at you for pointing out the contradiction, well, now you know something else is going on, right? They're hiding because there's some, some gain, some usefulness, some benefit, unconscious benefit to the confusion, and this is not an un, uh, not not a well talked about uh, idea in our our phrase. We, we we in our society we tend to think like, of course, people wouldn't want to be confused, and if they were confused, they would want to get out of that confusion as quickly as possible. Oh no 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 no! Confusion can be extremely useful, extremely useful, because if you're confused, you don't have to change. And sometimes it can be really obvious what the right thing to do is, and confusion is a way of going in a circle. How do you know that they're using confusion for that? 
you help them with the confusion and see if they receive the help. If they don't, now it must mean that at least in some way, shape, or form, they like the confusion and they're choosing confusion over clarity. That would be an example of a hiding. You see, that makes sense. That's a really common one. People, confusion is very powerful. Creating confusion, well, I don't wanna go down that rabbit hole. That's a common one. Let's see what the next one is. Um, yeah, because I had all these ideas over the last couple of weeks. And I didn't want to lose any of them. I usually don't work with notes. Oh, intention. Sorry. Somebody? Yeah, I have a question. Please, Karen. Um, is it possible to be curious and listen and ask the right questions in an email exchange? And if so, I mean, I would imagine that 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 would be less powerful than than in person because you don't have the the visual cues but a lot of the times i'll get an email and i know that that's not what the person is trying to say or meant to say uh, and so on but I, I struggle to come up with the words that i that that i might in person because mm -hmm. of course email is not an ephemeral like speaking is mm -hmm. um so yeah that's Just a great question to yeah, that's a, your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a great question, Karen. Thank you. Um, what I would say is, if you can imagine a graph where the the greater the amount of hiding that's going on, the less email is a good idea. So, uh, and the reason for that is that if you want someone to come out of hiding, they need to feel warmth. They need to feel that curiosity, and it's a very fine line, nuance wise, between sometimes the interpretation of a question as a hostile accusation or warm curiosity. So uh, even if you're really good with words and, and writing, uh, it can, it, it, the written word allows for misinterpretation. So I would just say it depends on how great the risk is for um, a hostile reaction. And if that's a low risk, then sure, email. But like as a general rule, I do, I try to remember to never hold anyone accountable via email ever. Don't do it uh, because when you hold someone accountable, you are inviting all of their authority projections to join the conversation, and they need to feel that you are not their mother or father, that you're on their side, and that you're there to help. And they will not be able to feel that as well. Even if you write the perfect words, it gives room for the projection because the words, there's no tone on the written word. So, you know, when we read written words, we bring in the tones. It's sort of like it comes in black and white and then we retouch the color ourselves. And what happens when we do that, uh, it's like we have the tones over here and then we write the words down and then they get boxed up and the color sort of like gets packaged out of them and then they arrive somewhere and then the person reconstructs that language based on how they know you. They're trying to read it if they're, you know, paying attention. They're going to read it with what they know about you and what you would mean in your tone of voice and stuff. But because of the medium, what can infiltrate that system is their own projections. So would you then would you then err on the side of over explaining yourself? In an, in an email so that you're putting more of the color in yourself, leaving less open to interpretation? Sure, yeah. I mean, that's one option you have. 
if you have to do it via email or it just seems like it's not that high risk a situation, then yeah, uh, you have to make your words uh, mono, I'm making a word up here, mono interpretable, interpretable only one way. Uh, yeah. Which yeah, that's what I mean. Okay. It's kind Thanks. of impossible. That's useful. Because, yeah. But, but um, yeah, and, and that's where communication is, is really important. Um, but yeah, be careful with that risk and learn from experience. Um, Thank so, you. Thanks. Thanks, Karen. Okay. Next one, one of my favorite topics in uh, the gap between intention and action. Intention and action gap. So if someone has an intention to do something and they don't do it, and they're not clear and coherent about why that is, they're hiding something. So this is a variation of, uh, or also applies to that last example. I wanted to tell you, but I didn't know how. No, actually you did know how. What's true is you were afraid or you know, were uncomfortable or whatever. That's a gap between intention and action. So this is a high bar and see what course was I talking? Oh, the uh, eight virtues course, uh, embodied values and virtues. Um, talk ad nauseum about integrity there. Integrity means if you have a pure intention to do something, you do it. And if you don't do it, you have a very good reason for that. And a very good reason does not include, I didn't know how, or things came up, or I got busy. All of those are hiding. All of those are excuses. All of those are stock language. Uh, excuses is on our list as well. We'll get to that. So the you just assume that a, um, well, let's put it bluntly, assume that a soulful embodied person does what they're going to intend to do. They just do it. Now, this is another one of those situations where the vast majority of our society has thwarted and distorted intentions all day. They do that all day. Uh, and so it's a high bar, but um, yeah, that's the deal. That's just the nature of, of our world. A, 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 a whole coherent, uh, integrous person does what they intend to do unless they have a really good reason not to. You can change your mind. I'm not saying you can't change your mind. I'm just saying if things change and you are making excuses for it, uh, then something else is going on. Procrastination, for example, let's use that as an example. Procrastination is, you remember like in, in school, procrastination is like, it's like a, it's like a trope. It's like a, it's like things kids talk about. Yeah, I'm procrastinating about this thing again. Oh yeah, you should have seen me last week. Last week I was procrastinating about this thing. And it's something people talk about. Well, it looks like I'm gonna have to stay up all night procrastination and so that's uh, superficially talking about what's really going on procrastination is control and anxiety you know when you mix uh, blue and yellow together you get green when you mix control and anxiety together you get one thing you can get is procrastination it's i'm afraid of doing this so i'm gonna do it later because then i have control over it i'm afraid of doing it, i'm gonna do it a little later i'm gonna do it a little later i'm gonna do it a little later oh no here's the deadline now i have to do it Oh, now the deadline's making me do it. It's not really my choice. I have to do it. And that's a really common thing that people will do. They excuse, externalize the cause. I can't do it. I'm afraid or it's uncomfortable or whatever. So they kick the can down the road and then the deadline approaches. Then they have to do it. And then they use the externalized deadline as if it's making them do it. They use it as a fuel source. So they don't feel like they're choosing to do it anymore. It's the sort of the deadline making them do it. 
See how confused that is? And a lot of people like operate significantly that way in their lives. That's not uncommon at all. Uh, and it can, quote, work, except that the price you pay is that you're draining your own power every time. You're giving the power to the externalization, the deadline, and then pretending that uh, it's making you do stuff. And people use that as a kind of tool, but the price you pay is your own personal power. So at least you're not talking about me behind my back. <laughs> yeah. And it's not that I don't, it's not that I've never done that myself or I like don't still do that. It, it's just about procrastinating a little bit less every time. Because if you really pay attention when you're procrastinating, you see you're making yourself miserable right? Because all you got to do is when you finally do the thing, you feel this big relief. And you go, oh man, I've been carrying that for a week. You know, that's why like every, I, I learned this, I don't know, whatever number of years back, but when tax season starts, I want to get my taxes done as quickly as possible. Why? Because I hate doing them. Because I hate doing them and I know I will procrastinate them and then it creates this weight and then I'm unhappy and it feels bad. And so the bigger, more soulful version of me is like, I see that going on and that's why we're going to do it as quickly as possible. So that's how you take ownership of that. But if you have like, you know, a half a dozen things like that, that are weighing you down, I mean, that's really unhealthy. That, that, and many people live that way their whole lives where they're procrastinating lots of things, not taking the bitter pill that was stock language, so you don't know what I meant by that. Uh, they don't take the bitter pill and get the thing over with so that they can be free in their life again. Instead, they're essentially playing victim to the thing that they think they have to do, but actually is a result of a number of choices, right? I participate in society and I have revenue, therefore I must pay taxes. Why? Well, I choose to pay taxes in essence because that's just part of the deal. Like if you make dinner, you go to wash dishes. That goes, they go together. So, um, yeah, well, victimhood is something we're going to talk about. Uh, classic intention and uh, action gap, one of the, I think, at the top of the uh, list would be, uh, but I didn't intend for that to happen, that excuse. I didn't mean for that to happen. I didn't mean to hurt you. That should have from you the horseshit reaction uh, because it certainly may be true. And to those people, I want I say on the inside, uh, well, I'm so glad you're not a sociopath intentionally doing bad things. I'm relieved to hear that. But uh, that you didn't intend to do that is completely irrelevant. We're talking about the, imp you know, hey, you did this and here's how it impacted me. That really hurt. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Oh, well, then it's fine then. No, <laughs> it's not fine. It still hurt. And there are consequences and there's an impact and I need to be able to talk about that. So I didn't mean to do that as an attempt to sort of dismiss the case. Like, well, your honor, it was unintentional. We move for dismissal. Uh, yeah. Um, so no, it takes no responsibility. It reminds me of people who like apologize without apologizing. Like they try to say, I'm sorry without saying I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> and here's it's not a real apology. It's not, you're not taking responsibility for that's the right. action. Yes, and this happens millions of times a day in customer service land. Uh, uh, sir, ma'am, I'm so sorry if there was any inconvenience. And I, I sometimes I let it go, and other times I say, well, I appreciate your sincerity that I can feel, but you lost me with the word if. I just spent 10 minutes telling you exactly what the inconvenience was, and when you put the word if there, it pu puts all that into question. So 
Are you saying that what I said may or may not have happened with the if? I mean, I actually have talked like that to people and people just are deer in the headlights. So I don't do that anymore. <laughs> so I don't recommend necessarily doing that. But um, what, what I would say is when you're on the receiving end of a customer service situation, it is not your job to uh, manipulate the consciousness distortion of the CSR uh, you're, that you're talking to. Uh, you can advocate for your needs. You can say, well, I appreciate your sincerity uh, that you put the word if uh, in there. I, I don't like, but I guess that's the best we can do right now. Um, are we done here? You know, like that. Um, but yeah, when somebody says, I'm, I'm sorry if I hurt you, I just told you you hurt me. Where's the if? Like, what are you talking about? So what I would say is, um, it's not necessarily to get into an argument about that. It's just when someone qualifies it like that, that's a breadcrumb. That's what I'm saying. Like Christine just said, they're not actually taking full responsibility. Whether you choose to die on that hill in that moment or not and go down that road, uh, that's another question. Um, I meant to, at the beginning of, uh, of this, uh, talk about the, uh, the door metaphor. Um, th th I've been using lots of metaphors. Isn't that funny where I talk about being anti-metaphor and then use lots of metaphors at the same time? Of course, they're useful. Uh, as long as they're rigorously explained. So another way of talking about these breadcrumb trails is that uh, anytime someone you pick up that someone is hiding, they're presenting you with a door. And behind that door is what they're hiding. So when you're in a helper position, you have to discern what doors are worth going through and what are not. Even in peer position, in, in peer relationality, I had a peer make an apology to me in the last week and use the term if in the apology. Oh man, in, in part of me, my blood was boiling, but I decided that it wasn't worth it. I And to go with the feeling of the sincerity and allow the words to go unchecked and I let it go. In other, situa in other situations, I might not. But yes, that person was not taking full responsibility. But in that case, I was willing to take except partial responsibility, okay? So when someone is hiding, they will present these various doors, stock language, it's a door, uh, vagueness, it's a door, logical contradictions, it's a door, a uh, gap between intention and, and outcome, it's, or intention and action, it's a door. Um, if you really want to make yourself and other people crazy, take all of the doors, okay? When you get really good at listening, you, I mean, when you're, you know, average at listening, you may hear one door in five minutes, but when you're really good at listening, you'll hear five doors in one minute. And then you've got to be discerning about, and then you, sometimes you got to be like, okay, there was a door, but I'm going to keep letting them talking. And there's another door. I'm not sure about that. And then that's when you get into, into intuition, for example, and other stuff that gets really advanced stuff that we may get to. But just know you're going to have, you know, when you get good at listening, you're going to have more doors than you can open. So you want to be judicious in uh, your discerning of what to open and what not to. Okay, so any questions so far? All right, I think What's I got the time. difference Please. between um, intention and commitment? The difference between intention and commitment? I'd say, I don't know, a matter of degree. Commitment's a strong intention. Okay. But I don't think that's actually the question you're asking. What is the question you're really asking? The question that I'm asking is what's, what's the difference because 
because um, yes. people can intend to learn, say for me, Spanish. I've been intending to learn Spanish for five, ten years. Mm -hmm. And what it really is is a lack of commitment. I doubt it. What what is it really about? Commitment. I'm not committed to it. I haven't gotten a class figured out and registered and uh -huh. did the things that would get me in the class to learn Spanish. So uh, I asked, um, Mary, do you, if you, I should ask permission first. Do you, do you mind if we use this as a little uh, case study? For listening? Sure. Okay. Sure. So when I said, I doubt it, what is this really about? What is this really about is a question that tries to get underneath. And it's saying, okay, maybe it's commitment, but I think it's actually about something else. What could that be? And do you notice what was Mary's reaction when I said, what is this really about? What did she say? Who was listening? She restated her original statement. Yes, she restated. Mm -hmm. She doubled down. What she did not say, which would have go, go, which would have been going along with my question, what might she have said that would have showed she was following that question? What is it? What's really is, is this about? I was hoping this would happen today. <laughs> so thank you, Mary. You're welcome. Something about a feeling that she was having in asking the question, uh, or. Or saying something like, um, ooh, uh, that's a good question, or I guess I haven't thought about it enough. Exactly, right. Some kind of receptive, like, huh, I hadn't thought about that. Or, you know, I did some looking about what else it could be. Or anything other than, you know, I, she said, like, just to dumb this down into really simple, like, uh, mathematical terms, she says X. And I go, mm, I'm not sure about X. I think it could be Y. Mm, X. That's what happened. There was no, hmm, why consideration moment. So what that tells you is the intuition I had that it was about something else goes from, I'd say, where I was at 30 or 40% certainty to 99. There absolutely is something else going on, and it is not commitment. Now, I also happen to know Mary well enough, which is where the intuition is coming from. I know about, um, uh, well, I don't want to say that yet. If it were, so let me, now I'm going to come back and ask a follow-up question for the original question. If it were about something other than commitment, what might it be? If it were something other than commitment, procrastination. Ah, and procrastination, as we talked about earlier, is a combination of control and fear. What's the fear? The fear could be um, not being able to pick up on the language. Uh-huh. So you have some like self-doubt and fear of like, what if I can't do it kind of stuff? Oh, I, took a, I took a Spanish class in the past. And after the third day, I looked around. Other people were getting it and I still hadn't gotten it. So I didn't go back. Uh-huh. So I still said, I'm going to learn Spanish. Uh huh. And since then, I have not committed, but I still have an intention. I would so my question was, what is the difference between intention and commitment? Nothing. 
Go ahead. Can I posit something here? Sure. You know, you, 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 you spoke about that image, the self-image, the film that somebody has over them. Could it be that this person who's wanting to learn Spanish likes the idea of learning to speak Spanish, but actually has no intention whatsoever. And, they, and that's why they've never got there. It's not necessarily a lack of commitment. It's that they're just in love with the idea of speaking Spanish. Yeah, that's certainly possible. But what would be your evidence for that? Your direct evidence for that? The direct evidence is the 15 years of not doing it. Too abstract. Because someone could not do something for 15 years and have any number of reasons for not doing it. So that's a really great, I'm glad you brought that, Garen, because that's a really common listening thing. I saw that a lot when I was training coaches, where it's not enough. It's sort of like um, in law, they would call that circumstantial evidence. Like just because it fits or could fit, like, you know, uh, someone is murdered and you find the murder weapon in their house. Okay, well, it certainly doesn't look good for them, but it doesn't mean they murdered for them. That's, that's circumstantial. There needs to be a motive too. See what I mean? So certainly that self-image thing is a possibility, um, but there actually is evidence in what Mary is saying that points to what the actual issue is. And I know we're at time. If people have to go, they got to go, they got to go. But if you want to stay tuned for the exciting conclusion. Fear of failing? Right. Well, that's exactly something in that domain. I wouldn't say thank you, Abby. We, we don't have enough information to say that conclusively. But what I would say we have that is just a, a little bit backed off of that is there, there some uh, emotional misgivings about it. Fear of failing, fear of looking bad, fear of um, being slower than, you know, less intelligent than whatever, any number of those kinds of things. But <clears throat> what's going on here? What I would say is um, the, and this goes back to, because this stuff is so complex, it's hard to get words around. Your initial question, I knew was not your actual question, and here's how I know. Because the question, what's the difference between intention and commitment, is a question that comes from someone who is testing out a paradigm of will. Only someone who is testing a paradigm of how can I focus my will to get things done and, and overcome things like fear rather than undergo them through self-curiosity. That's where your question came from. Do you follow me? So when you said, what's the difference between um, intention and commitment, I heard your soul talking about how you're testing that paradigm out and still struggling with it. And so that's how I knew that wasn't really the question you wanted to ask. Part of the clue was it's kind of an abstract philosophical question. And uh, I could sense that this was a personal matter to you, but you didn't lead with the personal matter. You see, you sort of, um, uh, uh, sort of cut away all of the personal and made it an abstract philosophical question. And that's a way people hide, you see, rather than bringing the, the actual struggle, which is that you had an experience that left a emotional bad taste in your mouth that is not resolved on some level. And that's the thing that needs to be addressed. But some part of you still wants to be able to will through that and do the thing you want to do anyway, without actually having to undergo 
whatever, you know, uh, emotional trigger that moment was, whatever needs to be processed from it. And, you know, sometimes you fall off a horse and like, yeah, we're all taught you got to get back on, but you also have to process the fall sometimes depending on what happened. Does that make sense? So this is exactly what I was hoping would happen today, and I hope we'll, we'll do more of it to have to be talking about listening and also get some real-time examples. So if you're interested in being able to hear someone ask a question and immediately get, I don't think that's actually the question that they're asking, then keep doing the course uh, because that's how powerful listening can be. People can tell you in their question, I actually have a different question. You just got to know how to listen. And it's actually really easy. I have no idea what assignment I'm going to give you this week, but I'm going to give you something. So stay tuned for that. And I will see you next week. Thanks for being here, you guys. Thanks for playing, Mary. Bye, bye for now, you guys. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that Clear and Open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.